Praise God. What a good morning together. Wish we could do this every day. You know, that'd be great. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are going to, God willing, wrap up this morning uh, the first um, six verses of this chapter. I don't believe I'm going to be able to do this very well without my glasses, which I left on the first row. So I can either disappear or Pastor Mike can appear. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I don't think I've ever done I don't think I've ever done that before. I've forgotten them completely, but never forgetting them when they're staring at me, right? Glasses can stare. That's an interesting concept. All right. Thank you for laughing, Sarah. I appreciate that. It's always a good encouragement for a pastor. One of my sons says, Dad, people laugh at your jokes, and I don't know why. He says, they're just not funny at all. We have this thing in our family where Rhonda makes herself laugh a lot. And so we laugh because she makes herself laugh. And so it's just a fun thing. So humor's good, right? And uh, so hopefully we'll always be able to enjoy humor together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You know the text that's taken from the Old Testament, don't you? We preached on it a couple months ago. This is the lead doctrinal statement of the Shema of Israel. And it spiritually teaches that God in his very nature is unity. When we are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, we are one with Christ. And we now enjoy the answer to Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that his people would be made one with him so that they could enjoy the unity he has with his Father so that the people of God would know what it means to be spiritually one with each other in Christ. David said, How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity, in spiritual oneness. Solomon even taught in the book of Proverbs in chapter 6, I think you can find it there in verses 17, 18, and 19, that anyone who would be dismissive of this unity that God's created and unnecessarily spread strife among believers would be considered, it's kind of a scary phrase, but would be considered an abomination before God. And you're right, Pastor Mike, powerful hymn text, that last hymn. Since we have been made one with God in Christ, who is God, Paul asks the Philippians in chapter 4 to strive to maintain the unity that the Spirit of God has given to us in peace. And our desire to do the Great Commission together was, re was expressed several years ago that would, with some goals that would lead us up all the way through 2030. And we said this, we have one God, one people with one message and one mission. Remember that? The people of God love the unity of God, and they persevere in that unity, that spiritual togetherness. But I want to tell you something. Unbelief doesn't. Unbelief doesn't enjoy unity, especially at the local church level. 
The religious unbelief in Corinth that we've been discussing recently invades the unity of God. They seek to do so first by undermining the messenger of the gospel, Paul, in our situation here, and in so doing, diluting the message and power of the gospel. Always beware of the soul that seeks to water down the message of the gospel. You, you won't always know what they're doing at first. First thing that you'll see before you hear it is their careless treatment of the sheep of God. When the flock of God becomes something a soul can take or leave, like they would anything of lesser value in their lives, we just really want to beware of that soul's influence in the local church. Paul has been teaching us what spiritual integrity in ministry is. He's done so by teaching us what a proper motivation and ministry activity should be in verses 1 and 2. And now he directs our attention to the divine rationale for gospel ministry with integrity in verses 3 and 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I believe it's important for us to remember here that Paul is seeking to gain back the confidence of Corinthians who had been persuaded by the merely religious not to trust him anymore. And these local church racketeers who jettisoned relationship building in Christ were professionals, entrepreneurs at pulling people away from each other in the Corinthian church and then causing distrust of one another beginning with the Apostle Paul. If you can destroy a relationship in Christ, then you can and will cause distrust of character and motive. So Paul writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, if we want to gain a context here and jump back to chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, where Paul says, therefore, having a such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not be able to intently look intently at the end of that which was fading, but their minds were hardened. He'll use that word again, minds, in our text this morning. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. The use of the word veil here in our text now, chapter 4 and verse 3, must be understood in light of how the word is mentioned by Paul within the immediate context of this letter to the Corinthians, it is clear that Paul is directly addressing the regenerated, spirit-filled yet recently made anxious believers in Corinth who have been affected by professing but not regenerated religious deceivers who are continuing to have their minds and hearts veiled from the gospel. While he makes this point clear, as to who he is addressing and why, he's also making an intuitive point. The gospel deluders were also attacking Paul's ministry success as defined by merely religious people. You see, mere religion loves to measure success by size. 
The optic of great or greater numbers equals success to the human eye. Recently, we took a college visit to uh, Nashville for my daughter, and um, we were driving down one of the most amazing city restaurant strips I've ever seen in my life. And uh, every restaurant was abuzz with activity, but there was one restaurant that, boy, just caught your eye. And it was only one on this mile-long strip of restaurants. And it had a line out the door and like down the street to the next block. It looked like it possibly could be a two to three hour wait. And that's the one where you just kind of, oh, that's the one that catches your eye. It's like, wow, they must have something that's made them tremendously successful. That's a, that's a staple in this community. That's probably a a place where people come from miles around just to eat, right? I wonder what's in there. But then you knew by the sign because it was something Pancake House. <laughs> it's like, those must be some amazing pancakes. <laughs> really. You're going to stand three hours in line for pancakes. Size, the line, size of that line just gives the appearance of success, doesn't it? And I'm sure financial restaurant business success it did, but this is what <coughs> this is what the um, the religious ones in Corinth were doing in evaluating Paul's ministry. It couldn't have been successful because it wasn't very sizable. Paul had not been successful. They were saying. Paul has been criticized for his lack of followers. Religious unbelief always looks at the outward appearance of things. Well, God always looks on the heart. The false ones of Corinth were criticizing Paul's ministry because for most of the ones he had preached the gospel to, well, they hadn't gotten saved. So they put the crosshairs on the ones in the church who had genuinely been born again to even get them to doubt Paul's ministry integrity. Paul knows that the unbelieving mind and heart will never stop in its planned attack against genuine belief. They will go to any length to destroy Christian relationship in the church. And sadly, they even strike Paul's heart most deeply here because... They really hated his message more than him. They would say, you preach Paul and no one's listening. You preach Christ alone, Paul, and most walk away. Some success story, that is. The religious criticism cut even deeper for Paul, you see, because these religious ones... Were Jews. And they knew from their own history that most Jews had rejected the gospel message that Paul preached, and he was a Jew. So they have been, in essence, saying that Paul can't even reach his own people, his own national family. What kind of charlatan, what kind of quack? This Paul must be. If he really loved Jews, wouldn't he have more success with his own people? 
You can journey back on your own time through the book of Acts and investigate from the very early days of Paul's missionary journey forward how his nation or representatives of the Jewish nation responded to the gospel. I would encourage you to write down these texts in the margin of your Bible, go back and study them in your own time, because what the, what the religious invaders in Corinth were doing, they were, they were talking about Paul's lack of success, and that's why Paul's kind of in a polemical sense, in, in kind of a debate sense. No, their eyes are veiled. It wasn't my lack of success. We're going to go on here and explain this text further. You're saying I have no success. I'm telling you their eyes are veiled to the gospel, right? And I'm telling you that there's a history. The book of Acts is a church history book. And you can go back into Acts chapter 13, verse 16, and verses 26 to 28. Acts 13, 16, verses 26 to 28. And then you can jump forward to Acts 13, verses 44 and 45. Paul's first missionary journey, there's an obvious rejection of the gospel, and vehemently so, by the Jewish people. You know, it was was his pattern when he first went into a city to go to the synagogue first and reason with them about Christ. So if a city had a synagogue, then, then obviously the first gospel front line that Paul would come to it with the Jewish people and most rejected. You journey forward to when he entered Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, and you see a similar response, a negative response of the Jewish people. Then you go forward into first, um, Corinth, the city to which he's writing now in, in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 12 to 31. And then you go on into Acts 19 when he enters Ephesus and look at verses 8 and 9 and you see a similar response there, a common rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people. And so the religious Jews in Corinth that invaded the church that are trying to destroy relationships are saying, look, this guy whose message you adopted has no success in his track record from the first time he set foot on his first missionary journey. And if he can't win his own people, he's got nothing. So in his grief over his people not responding to the gospel that has been interpreted by religious unbelief as a lack of success, Paul offers a humble and confident response. He says there, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The language here is very clear. Paul teaches the Corinthians that the unchanged lives or unbelief is a testimony of their own hardened hearts. You see, religious hearts have no truth to commend to every man's conscience in the sight of God that we discussed last week because they have no life that's been miraculously changed by the gospel of Christ. So they are continuing to perish along with the rest of the world that sullies their lifestyles in the world for it is passing away and its lusts. Verse 4, Paul continues, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Not only is their own unbelief being demonstrated in their lack of a changed life as they seek to destroy your relationships among those of you who believe, but remember They've made someone a God who is no God. The God of this world that they have made their God 
is also interested in keeping their minds. There's that second word of the used mind. Remember we said earlier in chapter 3 this morning? Satan is always into perverting the content of the gospel when it's spoken even before it gets to the ear gate and gets to the mind for the mind to process the truth of the content of the gospel. The God of this world, Satan himself, the God that they've made God, even though they've heard the gospel message, the Jewish people, they've allowed, since they've enthroned Satan as their God instead of Jesus as their Lord, they've allowed Satan to distort the content from the ear gate to the mind. And there are three parts of our person that the gospel influences. We've gone over those a lot here at Grace Church. Certainly, you must hear it. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's got to be processed in the mind. That's the intellect. When the spirit of God's working on your heart, it certainly has an emotional appeal, doesn't it? We've always said you really can't be saved unless you really do feel you're the worst sinner in the world at the moment you're saved. Lost more than anyone else. Broken more than anyone else. I'm the chiefest of sinners, Lord. And you died for me. And you died for all of my brokenness and my sinfulness and my rebellion. And the answer is yes. Boy, that'll cause you to shed a tear, won't it? does affect the emotion but the crowning element of the gospel is what and paul knew this and even in our culture in the 21st century this is still where the world that's enthroned satan is god is allowing him to say okay a get it it's in the mind b okay it's caused me to shed a tear but this is where satan goes to town on your mind right until you submit your will to christ as lord and dismiss Satan as being God of your life, you cannot be born again. Jesus is Lord. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. Satan here, in just this phrase, attacks the mind. The God of this world, Satan himself, loves to have the content of the gospel heard and then immediately twisted, diluted, and adulterated, leaving men with unchanged hearts and self-sufficient lives, producing their own form of godliness while denying the true power of it. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, that would actually be one of the characteristics of the end times. They would say they knew the power, but then they would deny, knew the gospel, deny the power of it, and that was as I've understood that text in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's like, yeah, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I got this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that I'm going to heaven. But then the person that's saying that really has no changed life. That's just a religious person, okay? Because their volition did not make Christ as Lord yet. Satan is a liar and a de deceiver. He'll throw all that he has at keeping men from hearing the gospel correctly. And after it's heard correctly, he'll seek to distort its exclusivity and simplicity by adding or taking away from the simple message of the content of the gospel. So Paul continues to teach that it is also the world that has made their Satan, had made Satan their God. So, he boldly continues to say, 
that the spiritual authority of a religiously unchanged life is one that has no authority because they have not seen the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. As verse 4 concludes. It says here, so that they cannot see. This is one of three places in the Corinthian letters where Paul mentions something of the content of the gospel. If you want to write down the other two, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, and a classic passage defining the content of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He writes here that the gospel concerns the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. I believe that we have here the first of two creation week references in our verses we're studying this morning. As we are made in the image of God, so is Christ the exact image of God, only he is infinitely God. Christ is the perfect representation of the invisible God, the precise expression of the unseen God. The word uh, for image here literally means that he is the express likeness of God both in personality and in distinctiveness. So simply, Paul's just reminding the Corinthians that what true spiritual success is, it's not in the numbers of what man would call success. He's asking them to think through what they once were, veiled to the gospel, and to ponder what they have become now in Christ, which is demonstrated in the way they live in a countercultural way in Christ-likeness. There will forever remain a distinct difference in the life of someone who has seen and accepted Christ compared to the life of one who hasn't, who is still enthroning Satan as their God in the way they live. Okay? So that's his rationale. His message, as we wrap up this morning, is begun in verse 5. He says here, now remember, we're not like the religious invaders. He said, we do not preach ourselves. We're not looking to build a brand in the church. We're not looking to self-promote in the church. We're not looking to get our agenda done in the church. We remember 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where he said his entrance to them was, he came with them not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but doing one thing and one thing only, preaching Christ and him crucified. Very ex exclusive, simple message. Paul didn't or wouldn't have begun a social media campaign about where he had been and the success that he did have, which he could have done. He says here, we would not preach ourselves. It's a wonderful thing to see as social media continues to increase in our culture that self-promotion equally declines with it, doesn't it? No. Our world, even the Christian world, is drunk with the wine of self-promotion. I think we've all tasted it personally to some degree. Paul's mindset was that of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. We live so that Christ can be seen. This disposition that Paul maintained is the opposite of the false ones in the church who are like Diotrephes, always seeking to have the preeminence. The gospel minister 
is like the Savior of the gospel who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul never preaches to promote himself or his own self-worth or importance. He always declared the primacy of Christ and his gospel and readily took a back seat to the power of the message of Jesus. Paul knew there were no personal achievements in gospel ministry. All pastors, elders, and deacons, Bible teachers at Grace Church, I'm going to stay that, restate that sentence for you and for me. Paul knew there were no personal achievements in gospel ministry. And if we hear crickets on that one, it's okay. He knew any progress was the progress of the gospel. It was the progress of Christ. He would say, if you're looking for recognition and personal achievement awards, keep your day job. The Judaizers enjoyed promoting themselves rather than being promoted. Or while being promoted. They were not the servants who tried to help people. They were the dictators who exploited people, one author said. Consider with me for a moment Paul's personal ministry resume. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 says he didn't trust himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, which we've already studied as well, he didn't commend himself. Chapter 4 and verse 5, which we've already seen, he did not preach himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, he was willing, he was a willing servant, as well as a concerned father. In this, he followed the example of Christ who himself adopted the status of the role of the servant. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. Remember that? Who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Paul was a preacher by gifting. We know that. He says, we do preach. That's his gifting. But we don't preach ourselves. And he's a pastor how does he demonstrate that he's got a pastor-teacher heart? Well, we commend ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. He says here, but we do preach Christ as Lord. This is a bold reminder that would have pierced the conscience of an unsaved Jewish member of the Corinthian church, but it would have blessed the heart of a converted Jewish member of the Corinthian flock. The Jewish person, saved or unsaved, would have known why Paul used the word or the name Lord in this passage. Yes, Jesus was their Christ. He was their Messiah come in the flesh. But he was first the lamb that was sacrificed for sin. To the saved person, they got that. To the unsaved Jew, the Messiah failed if he was just a lamb that died. They wanted their Christ to be king. So he knows that he's speaking to two kinds of people in the Corinthian church. The majority that have been born again, but this remnant of unbelief that's destroying relationships and ministry integrity in the church. But it was in the sacrifice as the Lamb of God this Christ that died, this king, this coming king that died. 
It was in this sacrifice that he would demand the spiritual allegiance of his forgiven followers. And the law that kills became nothing more than a schoolmaster unto Kurios, unto Lord. Yes, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the God of the Old Testament, elected, captured, wandering, exiled, and restored to Israel, Jewish nation. And he demands when your people are forgiven and born again an exclusive fellowship. He proclaimed this to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Our spiritual despot is God in flesh, but he is a servant and his followers must grant their allegiance to his person and his disposition. He is Lord over all, in all, and through all. So he concludes in verse 6 by saying this. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So to wrap up this portion of Paul's message of defining ministry integrity, he asks the genuine Corinthian believer to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling as he had taught the Philippians to do in Philippians chapter 2. It's clear in these words that Paul is referencing our second allusion to the creation week. And he's saying here that our God who spoke the light of our created universe into existence, out of nothing, is the creator who has allowed recreative light to shine into our hearts that were also without form and void and darkened by sin. The divine omnipotence that said, let there be light, is the same power that transformed our being to be compelled to live and to speak the gospel as we pursue Christ's likeness. Paul remembers Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Good cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible. Where he says that God saw fit to reveal his son to him. And of course, Paul in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and here in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, is referring to his salvation experience in Acts chapter 9. Luke three times in the book of Acts mentions Paul's conversion by using the words in the noonday light from heaven brighter than the sun and emphasizes the personal and revelatory nature of Christ revealing himself to Paul Paul an apostle in his conversion experience so the very omnipotent Word, spoken word of God that created our universe is the same power, it's the same word that speaks spiritual light into our soul in Christ. And Paul here is referencing that of his own conversion. You can write down Acts 9, verse 3, verse 8, verse 9, Acts chapter 22 and verse 6, and also verses 9 and 11 in Acts 22 
In Acts chapter 26 and verse 13, Luke mentions the same testimony three times in Paul's behalf. It was in the unveiled face of Christ that Paul saw God's glory. Paul had seen the light of the knowledge, literally the light that springs forth from knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory mentioned here in the grammar is certainly God's glory. And it's seen in the face, the, the better literal translation, it's seen in the person of Christ. For Christ is the express image of the glory of God. He's just simply reminding the Corinthian believer that their salvation has been of God and not of man. And he's asking them at this point to stop looking around like the religious ones are asking them to do to look for numbers as they seek to destroy relationships. And he's asking them to remember the moment of their conversion experience. Do you remember when omnipotence spoke to your heart and changed you? God's infinite ability, his glorious power, his divine choice of you and me in whom he would speak his recreative light in Christ into your soul should continue to enrapture our attention unto him and not man's ingenuity that always seeks to distract us away from the glorious light of God in Christ. Maybe some of you saw it. It was going viral uh, on social media this week. There was a a trucker that was driving in the middle of the night and a lot of these trucking companies now have um, mandatory onboard cameras just like police cars do um, trucks get in accidents people like to sue trucking companies right so we're gonna have the backed up with some camera action he's just driving along and uh, talking on the his radio I don't even know they call him CB still I don't know but he's talking on the, his radio, and um, right over the top of his truck, this, this, this comet just, just this bright, obvious streak of light, right? Like very distractive, right? And he was an experienced trucker, so he didn't even swerve or shake, which you're thankful for. Um, but he knew that he was talking to other truckers on the same route. And he said, wow, did you just see that? What was that? That's the kind of idea that Paul's talking about here. He has it in a spiritual sense. Right? If you're going to be distracted by anything, be distracted by how omnipotent light in the person of Christ, how God revealed him to you. Be amazed that God took your light that was hell-bent towards living like hell and bent it towards living towards Christ-likeness. Amazing. And the same power in which he spoke the universe into existence is the exact same miraculous power that he spoke into your life the moment you were born again. That's why Jesus said, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's the moment. People say, I don't have a moment. A lot of people say they don't have moments. I have family members that say 
I don't have moments. I can't remember that. You know, certainly none of us had an apostolic moment like Paul, right? We didn't have that, you know, road to Damascus, bright flashing light. None of us have seen Jesus physically like Paul did, right? So people say, well, I believe and my life is changed, but I don't, I don't remember that moment, that moment. So many times when we were growing up, remember folks that grew up like me, you know, when we were born again, we probably had our Bibles with us and we asked the preacher to sign our Bible, right? Put the date on it, the moment we were saved, when we were kids, right? Or maybe you still have that Bible with the date of your salvation written in there. I say there's nothing wrong with that. But for the people that can't remember the month or the date, let alone the year, can I tell you when your moment was if you're truly born again? The omnipotence of God took over your life. It's the day your life began to change. It's the day you began to change the way you live. Okay. You study Paul's life post-Acts 9 was a radical change in that life. Recreative light of God spoken into your hearts does bring about radical divine beauty and holiness and distinctiveness. And my friends, it's, it's obvious, just like the comet, right? It's, whoa. It's obvious. To the Corinthian people whose lives were changed by the obvious omnipotence that God had spoken into their lives, he's saying, stay focused on that success. Do all you can to pull your eyes of what, off of what man calls success and keep your eyes on Christ and Christ alone. Because he's the one that builds the church. Man doesn't build the church. Jesus builds it. It's his. He's the head of the church, he's the chief cornerstone, and he's everything in between. Okay? So for us today, I just say, my dear friends, build relationships among the changed Please, lovingly, patiently, conscientiously be aware of a soul that's here for any length of time. Doesn't love to build relationships around God, Christ, and His Word. majority of the friends and saints we have here at Grace are demonstrating that they're obviously changed because they crave and love and have to have Christian relationship. But there's still a handful of some who could quote a thousand Bible verses to you who are more bent at dividing relationships rather than they're pouring into relationships and helping others become Christ-like.
And I suppose they're in every church. From what Paul tells us. But lovingly pray for them. Lovingly pray for them. That they would, with unveiled face, see Christ. Because I still do believe there's a handful here that have been church members for decades that probably need to be born again. Because born-again people, when they get together with other born-again people, they're amazed by the comet light. Wow. They're amazed by Christ. Relatively undistracted by all those things that aren't him. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for your mercy extended to us in Jesus. Amen.